you know, my, um, my grandma and granddad used to live near, uh, they used to have a house near the beach. It was basically house, road, beach. And so as a, as a kid, me and my brother, of course, we used to love going to see our grandma and granddad, but we used to love seeing them because we absolutely loved going to the beach. And um, <clears throat> more than just that, my granddad, he was like the ultimate granddad. We chopped wood together, we used chainsaws and axes, I never told my mom any of those things. We went sea fishing, we built shelters, mended roofs, all of that kind of stuff. To me, at that age, my granddad was a hero. He was like the SAS of the granddad world. And um, it was like the Bear Grylls granddad. And uh, one day, my mum sent my brother and I out fishing with my granddad and my uncle. And it was a baking hot day. We were in our shorts and T-shirt and flip-flops. And we're still at the age where your mum kind of decides what you wear, um, which are quite difficult days. And um, anyway, we've had the slightest of mix-ups with my granddad. My mum thought we were going fishing off the breakwaters. It's about just a, a minute away from the house, just from the shore. But SAS granddad, he's got out the boat. Okay, so there we are, what felt like a mile from the shore, completely unprepared for this fishing trip. My SAS granddad, he didn't just have a fishing rod. He's got like a rod with, with more than one hook. He's got about 30 hooks on it. We've got fish flapping about all over the bottom of the boat because he wants to catch everything. And uh, for my granddad, the rules were whatever you caught, you ate. So we're also dragging this net behind us as well to kind of maximize the catch. Then there's kind of got to be drama in these stories, hasn't there? Then, then comes the drama, the outboard motor cut out. Neither. Um, my uncle or my granddad could get it going. And then as though some kind of story from a movie, the weather turned. And not just a little bit, it kind of turned big time. And uh, the storm has swelled up and my brother and I, we're huddled under the, the front part of the boat that's got this little covering bit. And uh, we're freezing cold and our teeth are chattering. And obviously I wasn't crying at all, um, but my brother, my brother was crying like a baby. And um, my granddad, my granddad got the spark plugs out and he's bathing them in petrol trying to set fire to them to warm them up. Goodness knows if that's even a good idea, but he's like my hero for, for giving it a go. And uh, my uncle is shouting about flares and lifeboats and all this kind of stuff. And I'm giving my life to Jesus multiple times <laughs> in that moment. Anyway, I kind of cut the story short. We obviously, we survived. I'm, I'm still here to tell you the tale. My uncle has rowed us back to shore, and we've spent the evening in front of an open fire eating eel and crabs. And um, that's now why my seafood diet is basically limited to fish fingers. <laughs> and they've got to be the bird's eye ones. But the, the point I want to make is that we were totally unprepared for that trip that day. We'd, we'd got the wrong mindset. We'd got the wrong outfit. We'd got the wrong attitude. We had the wrong preparation. We'd got absolutely everything wrong, and it showed in our fishing trip. It was an absolute disaster. It was kind of funny to me now, but at the time, even though I wasn't crying, it was fairly brutal. <laughs> and um, I just want to talk a bit today about what it looks like to be a servant of Jesus. I think sometimes we can go into serving him with the wrong preparation. Kind of like I did on my fishing trip. Often I think we go into serving him with a misunderstanding of what it requires, and it leaves us out in the cold. It leaves us in the middle of no man's land. I want to spend a bit of time just exploring that because I think a servant-hearted attitude, a servant heart, is, is a crucial kingdom character trait. 
So I want to have a quick look at John chapter 13. That's where I'm going to focus some of what we're talking about this morning. John 13, verses 1 to 17. And if you don't have your iPad or iPhone, um, I'll just read it. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So what does it look like to be a servant? How can we prepare ourselves to be servants? I'm going to touch on a few brief points. It's not an exhaustive list of things we could draw out of this passage, but I want to have a quick bird's eye view of it, sometimes looking from the perspective and understanding of Jesus and sometimes from that of one or more of the disciples. But the first point I want to draw out is having the posture of purpose. Have you ever seen people who know what they've got to do and when they've got to do it? It changes everything. Just a few days ago, I saw this lady running down the road, and um, she was slightly older than myself. I've got to be careful in how I word this, but I reckon she was about double my age plus a little bit more, so you kind of get the idea of how old she was. And I'm wondering what on earth she's doing running down the road at the pace and in the manner that she's running. Then up the road, I saw the bus come in. She was not going to miss that bus, I can tell you. But we see a similar thing with people who have a bucket list, a list of things that they plan to do in their lifetime. They want to skydive or bungee jump or walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Why on earth you'd ever want to do any of those things, we'll never know. But they've got a purpose, they've got a focus, and that adjusts and it directs what they do and when and how they do it. I think that purpose is a big deal because it gives us a resolve, it gives us a determination and a commitment, it gives us a persistence and a perseverance to something. I think to be a servant of Jesus, we need a posture, we need an attitude, we need a stance, 
that has purpose. The passage that we've just read in verse one says Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Jesus knew that the hour had come. He knew what he was about and he knew what he needed to do. And that would shape what he did and how he did it. See, Jesus' movement towards his Father, which had gradually unfolded in his life, was about to come to its climax. In full awareness of what would happen to him, that he'd be crucified on a cross. He didn't run for the bus. He didn't go bungee jumping. Instead, he washed the disciples' feet. I wonder if washing people's feet would ever make it onto our bucket list. Because in Jesus' final hours of his earthly life, his posture wasn't to recount how great he was. It wasn't to tell the disciples all the amazing, wonderful miracles that he'd done. It wasn't to talk about how great his teaching was. Instead, it was to serve. He served the disciples. And I think we need to acknowledge and we need to understand that our calling and our duty and our passion is to serve Jesus. And we serve him by living obediently and we serve him by serving others. Jesus in this passage is giving his disciples a purpose. He's showing them an example of the kind of people that they need to be and the kind of attitude that they need to have in order to represent him in the world. In those very moments, Jesus really contradicts the standards of the world. He flew in the face of the cultural expectation and he shows them a new way of living. In the very moment that you would have thought Jesus would want to think about himself, he's thinking of others. He showed them love right up to the end. His love didn't waver, it didn't falter in the hour of his own crisis. In fact, it was composed, it was remarkably unconditional. Jesus' obedience to death on a cross, to, to die a sinner's death, just continued the fulfillment of his, of, his, um, of his posture and his demonstration of being a servant. See, Jesus' death on a cross was undisputable proof of his love for us, of his willingness to serve us, and was the accomplishment of his purposes on behalf of us all. The posture of purpose. You see, our understanding of purpose is written in our behavior. For the lady that ran for the bus, her age and her physical abilities didn't matter. She ran because she needed to get the bus. And I believe that we need to understand and we need to know that we're called to be servants. To understand all that that means, to understand the implications of that. And then to adopt that posture with everything within us. Purpose is a big deal because it can change the whole meaning of our lives. It can breathe life into a job or into a family dynamic or into a life stage that's become dry. Part of our purpose as kingdom people is to be servants. We see as we read this passage that part of God's desire for our lives is that we give ourselves to the serving of others. So the second thing, what does it look like to be a servant? I believe that we need to desire it and to give ourselves to servanthood wholeheartedly, to be wholehearted about this. Verse four says this, it says, Jesus got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and, to be, and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel 
that was wrapped around him. See, Jesus modeled a servant heart. He took off his outer clothing. He laid aside his majesty. In this moment, he took the form of a servant. He humbled himself and he poured water from a basin. In a few hours, he would pour out his blood in death. Blood shed to wash away our sins. The act of washing the disciples' feet was a symbolic act of what was to come. Verse six, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. I kind of think it makes sense that Peter would question it. Jesus, their master, is doing the work of a slave. He's doing the work of a servant. And so Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. You know, Steph and I used to live in a house in Reading and um, very small house. We didn't have central heating. We had this tiny little gas fire and it was freezing in the winter months. You couldn't leave the gas fire on overnight and even if you did, it wasn't warm enough to heat the house. And we couldn't afford to do anything about it. But one day somebody in our small group said to us, we'd, we'd love to offer to pay for you to have central heating. And this remarkably generous offer stirred a really interesting reaction in me. I was, I was proud. I didn't want to be a charity case. I didn't want somebody to do something for us like that. I wanted to be able to provide for us. And I had to go on a bit of a journey in dealing with that response. Needless to say, we did accept the offer and it was a huge blessing to have a warm house. But you know, a similar thing is kind of kicking in here for Peter. Peter's refusal to be washed, to have his feet washed by Jesus is such a picture of the stubborn pride that can develop and can reject Jesus. It's not isolated to Peter alone, is it? I think so often we can find a similar attitude in our own lives and we can identify with that kind of response. Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? You shall never wash my feet. Perhaps partly Peter's saying it because he couldn't let Jesus do this because it would have indicated that Peter was greater than Jesus. I wonder if, in part, Peter's response was because if he'd been in the position of Jesus, if he'd been the teacher, if he'd been the instructor, he wouldn't naturally have wanted to stoop to wash the feet of somebody considered lower than him. Like with this situation I found myself in with the central heating, we don't like to be in a position, do we, where we have nothing to offer. But the reality is we can't, we can't earn Jesus, we don't deserve Jesus. It's grace alone and we have to humble ourselves and admit our need of a savior. Because you don't need a savior if you don't think you need saving. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. I think if we just peel back a few layers to look at the meaning of this, what's going on. The custom of the day was that before you went out for a meal, you took a bath. And I kind of think that's a fantastic custom that I recommend we continue forever and a day. But you know, they would have walked through the city. They wouldn't have had shoes on like we do that cover the whole of our feet. Or if we don't have shoes, we'd have socks that are at least covering the whole of our feet. They'd have had sandals. It would have been incredibly dusty roads that would have picked up an awful lot of dirt and grime. So when you went where you were going for a meal, a servant would wash your feet. They wouldn't need to give you a bath because you just need your feet washing. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Verse nine, then Lord, 
Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. I love that about Peter. He's this instant processor. He's like a both feet in kind of guy. Why have a shower when you can have a bath? I don't just want to get wet. Completely immerse me here. But I think there's an attitude in Peter that Jesus can really bless. Peter's basically saying, if washing my feet brings me closer, then don't just stop there. Wash the whole of me. What is it that motivates us? Peter is motivated by being closer to Jesus, and I love that about him. What does it look like to be a servant? I think it looks like being wholehearted, throwing yourself in, both feet in. Whatever is going to bring us closer to Jesus, that's the attitude that we want to adopt, to fully develop our characters before him. We've got to surrender that stubborn pride that can so often rob us of who we could really be. To be a servant of Jesus, we've got to fully understand that we need Jesus. Verse 10, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. I think that's quite a powerful illustration. When we come to Jesus, when we place our faith in him, it's like taking a bath. Our sins are washed away. But each and every day as we go about our daily business, we do things, we say things, we think things that put a distance between us and God. And we need our feet washing again on a daily basis. We need to wash our feet. A stubborn pride, I think, though, can so quickly and so easily develop in us that stops us going to Jesus to have our feet washed. We leak, don't we, the Holy Spirit, and we constantly need to be refilled. Jesus teaches us that every time we sin, we don't need to have a bath, but we do need to come to him, and we need to, have, uh, to receive forgiveness and to restore that relationship with him. The kind of servant that I believe he's calling us to be is wholehearted, placing ourselves before him and saying anything, anytime, I don't care what it takes, but I want to be close to you. The disciples are, are in the house with him. They're sat at the table having the meal with him. I wonder, are we sat around the table having the meal? Are we in the house with him? Or are we sat on the edge? Are we even in the house? I think there's an invitation for us all this morning to be wholehearted in our service of Jesus. So what's it look like? to be a servant. The third thing that I want to draw out of this passage is I believe we need to understand that we're forgiven forgivers. There used to be a group of young people that went to the vineyard church that we went to in, in Reading, and uh, they were quite a handful. Each week they would, they would come to church, and rather than take one donut, they would kind of take the lot. And uh, as the youth pastor at the time, that presented with, with a number of challenges. If anybody felt frustrated by the young people, it was kind of my problem. And uh, the guy that oversaw the refreshments, he never once complained about it, but I knew how he felt. He kind of let me know, you know, I could just kind of sense it. Anyway, things kind of gradually progressed from the donuts onto snooker cue fights and, you know, the whole array of behavior that can happen like that. And we finally moved on from the donuts being a scandal when mid-service at the back of church one Sunday, one of the young people decided to lower their shorts and reveal part of their posterior. And uh, do you know, there's some days you don't want to be the youth pastor, and that's like it's top of the list. And uh, do you know, a few weeks after that, 
Um, the, the setup team arrived at eight in the morning to, to set up church. We met in a leisure center, so everything has to be brought out of the world's, like Europe's smallest cupboard, basically. And on that particular week, the, there wasn't any sound equipment to set up. Every piece of sound equipment had been stolen. And the logical trail to who had done it, the eventual forensic trail to who had done it, led to our donut friends as being the prime suspects, and actually eventually the ones that were charged with the crime. Do you know though what, that what was quite remarkable is the guy who led the church, he knew all of that, and yet before any action was taken by the police, before all the details had fully landed, when those young people turned up to church that week, even though he knew who had done it, he treated them no differently. He loved them, he accepted them, he welcomed them. Do you know what? They could have as many donuts as they wanted. Do you know when you know Jesus, when you know that you're forgiven, it changes how you act and how you respond to others. Even though I think actually the reality is that can be hard at some times. We're forgiven so we can forgive others. The passage says, verse 11, for he knew who was going to betray him, Jesus knew that not long after washing Judas's feet, that Judas would betray him, a betrayal that would start a journey towards being crucified on the cross. What an almost unbelievable attitude Jesus shows. He forgives him before he even does it. He serves him and he meets his needs, even though Judas is about to go way further than throwing it back in his face. Even though Jesus knew Judas's heart, even though he knew his motives, even though he knew his plans, Jesus loved him and he constantly and continually offered him opportunities to change. The kind of servants that I believe we're called to be is forgiven forgivers. Now this is, this is no small feat. We really need to understand our purpose to, ne- to not get blown off course. We're going to come up against some pretty big challenges to having this attitude and this as a desired response. Just to throw a few things at you this morning, families, parents, children, just a few things that in everyday life are going to tread on our toes. What about how you respond to an employer when you're facing redundancy? What about when you've been treated unfairly, still choosing to speak well of the other person? I believe that forgiven forgivers can change the culture of a family or a workplace or a neighborhood or a community. Wherever it might be for you as you serve those around you, I believe that that attitude can really change things. I recently was chatting with a nurse in the life of this church who told me that almost daily in the workplace she's subject to insults, people swearing at her, all kinds of verbal abuse. And yet every day she seeks to continually be polite and treat everybody the same, regardless of how they treat her. See, Jesus was prepared to forgive Judas even when he wasn't asking for it. I think that we're called to forgive people regardless of whether or not they apologize. I'm not saying that's going to be easy. In fact, I think actually quite the opposite. But I think it's worth considering where is it that we're at with this at the moment? Have we been ground down? Have we started to not forgive others in the same way that we've been forgiven? I don't know if you've ever been driving the car along a road and there's somebody trying to get in from a, from a side road. It kind of happens every day, doesn't it? But how many times have you let somebody in 
and then they don't let somebody else in. And you're kind of like, what, what are you doing? What's that about? You know, we've been let in, and we need to let others in. There's another challenge in this part of the passage. For he knew, verse 11, who was going to betray him. In a court of law, that would be considered premeditated. You know, you may have had times in your life where you've continually, consciously or unconsciously, rejected Jesus. That's what Judas is doing in this moment. But I want this passage this morning to assure you that you can turn back to him at any point. He's longing for you to. He's got a love that will never end. It doesn't matter how far you've strayed. It doesn't matter how distant you think you are. He still wants to wash your feet. Nobody's beyond him. In fact, actually, he takes off the outer garment. He takes up the position and the posture of a servant, and he goes to the cross to offer us forgiveness, if we choose it. I don't want to say, no, not me. I want to say, Lord, my Savior and my King, I need my feet washing. I've picked up dirt and the grime from the road that I've been walking on. Please forgive me and please wash my feet again. We need, I believe, to wash our attitudes regularly because they quickly and easily become dusty and dirty. Not only that, but for our prayer to be, Lord, teach me not just to serve those I prefer, to serve my friends, to serve those that are easy and those I want to spend time with but teach me and help me to serve those that actually may even throw it back in my face. I think some of us this morning will need to be reminded that we're forgiven forgivers. Some of us will need to be reminded that we're forgiven by the forgiver. As we become increasingly aware of how we've been forgiven and redeemed, I believe that we can become increasingly freer to forgive others and to humbly serve others despite the cost, because that's what Jesus did, and that's what he's asking us to do. The fourth and the final point, it's a bit of a strange one, but I believe the kind of servants we need to be is to be like chiropodists. Okay, now that sound, may sound a little bit weird, and it kind of is, but hear me out. I've got two experiences of feet that really stick with me. The first one is when I spent the day with my grandma rather than my granddad, and I said to my grandma, Grandma, what are we doing today? And she said, the chiropodist has come in. Okay, and I had no idea at that age what that kind of meant, but let me tell you, I kind of came to realize that I prefer spending time with my granddad because a chiropodist is like a foot doctor, basically, and it was not pretty. I can still see it now. The, the toenail clipper was kind of like an angle grinder. But, um, do you know, feet, they're, they're, they're not pretty, really, I don't think. They're not the most pleasant of things. I don't really want to wash between somebody's toes. My second memory of feet is I went to the doctor with a lump on my foot, and I, he said to me, it's a ganglion. I don't know if you know what one of those is, but the di dictionary definition of a ganglion is this. It's a structure containing a number of nerve cell bodies, often forming a swelling on the nerve fiber. Basically, you don't want one. And um, he said to me, you've got two options. Either we surgically remove it, or you go home and you find a really big book and you smack it with everything within you. Guess which option I went for? So I went home and I found the most unnecessarily large book I had, which happened to be a Bible, and I smacked it with everything within me. The next day I went back to the doctor, still with a lump on my foot, to be told that I'd probably broken a bone in my foot. <laughs> and um, obviously, ridiculous. Why, why am I talking to you 
about my feet stories. Why am I saying that to be a servant looks like being a chiropodist? Because it's not always particularly pretty. It's not always particularly easy. It's not always the job or the role that we'd want to jump up and down about. For those of you that are kind of foot doctors, I take my hat off to you, but do you know, I think this illustrates what I'm trying to say. If you came here by car today, you may have noticed a team of people out there smiling at you and greeting you as you arrived. And that team are out there week in, week out, whatever the weather. Now you could say, why do we need people to show us where to park? You don't do that when you go to the supermarket. You don't do it when you go to the cinema. Why on earth do you need somebody to show you here? I was recently chatting with somebody who leads one of those teams and helps oversee the car parking, and he phrased it to me like this. He said, it's so important. We, welcome, we want to welcome people here right from the moment they pull up. We want to have a team of people smiling at them, effectively saying, we're so glad you came here. This is what hit me, though. He said this. He said, it leads people into worship. It prepares people to come into the building. It sets the tone and the pace for worship. And you know, I thought that is so true, not just of the car parking team, but when we serve people, what we're really doing is we're leading them towards Jesus. We're pointing them towards the one that we want to worship. We're setting the tone and the pace of their understanding of Jesus. That's what Jesus modeled to us, and that's what he's calling us to do. Jesus said, verse 14, now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I don't think that's always easy. I don't think it's always pretty. Jesus could have just washed John's feet, the disciple that was thought to be closest to him, yet he washed all of them. He washed... Peter, who would later deny him. He, he washed Thomas's feet, who would later doubt him. He washed Judas's feet, who was about to betray him. He didn't pick the easy ones. He chose to serve them all. And I think the challenge for us is to reach the place where we're more concerned with serving the needs of others than we are with serving our own needs. Verse 15, Jesus says, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve others, and he's calling us to do the same. I've recently been asking myself, do I know the names of my neighbors? Because if I don't know their names, I'm not likely to invite them over for a meal. I believe that acts of love, acts of service, and acts of kindness give us an authority, the presenters with kingdom opportunities. How can we seek ways to have opportunities to serve others? How can you get more involved in the life of this church? How can you get more involved in the life of your community in order to serve others? Jesus said, I've set you an example. Do as I have done. Serving also means forgiving. Love holds no record of wrong. We can so easily, can't we, want to carry grudges, to like the feeling of telling somebody off, to enjoy the feeling of giving somebody a piece of our mind. We can so easily wash people's feet but the temperature of the water can be too hot or too cold. Do you see what I mean? I think we need to look at our hearts. We need to look at our motives because this passage speaks of a different way of living. There's such a gentleness and such a tenderness to what Jesus is doing and modeling. Jesus is doing the things that normally a slave would do, the little, menial, insignificant, annoying, messy things. 
that could be considered a waste of his time. But it wasn't a waste of his time because his posture was to be that of a servant. Just want to finish by saying this because you can't really miss this part of the passage out. It says in verse 17, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Giving yourselves to others can be the most joyful and most gratifying thing we can do. It's an act and a response of obedience. You know, it's one thing to know that we need to do them and it's another thing to do them. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Blessing doesn't come from knowing. Blessing comes from doing. There is a blessing in obedience. There's a blessing in serving others and meeting the needs of others. Today, I've just very briefly looked at four things. I think to be servants of Jesus, we need to have a posture of purpose. We need to have an attitude and a stance that has purpose, to be driven by an understanding of who we serve and why we serve him. You know, being a servant of Jesus really requires us to give ourselves to serving others absolutely wholeheartedly from a position of that understanding that it's by grace that we've been saved and by grace we've been forgiven. You know, we're to serve others with a, a sacrificial love, really demonstrating forgiveness and to humble ourselves, our attitude, our, our behaviors, our motives, our desires, whatever the cost, to, prepare, to prefer others, serving Jesus, serving his cause for his name, name's sake. This may well be a challenge to us this morning, but ultimately, actually, I think the challenge is way more than will we wash the feet of others. The challenge comes at the end of the book of John where Jesus says to Peter, and it's the same challenge I believe we're faced with today, is to be the kind of servant that will follow Jesus all the way to the cross, to lay down our lives in service of Jesus. In this passage, he's given us a model, he's given us a pattern, he's given us a mandate to follow. I guess the question for us all is, will we follow it?